0: And when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, "'Who is this?' And the crowd said, "'This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee.'" So when I say the word skydiving, what comes to your mind? Or to put it a little bit more bluntly, if I were to tell you that I had purchased for you a ticket to go on an airplane to skydive for free, what would be your response?' Would you be excited or would you be terrified? For me, I would say, thank you so much. That's very kind. I'd be happy to take pictures from the ground when you jump off of that that plane. (laughs) I mean, when it comes to kind of adventurous things or extreme sports, we have kind of two responses. We're either excited or we're terrified. Um, Last year, I went on a trip with a couple friends, and we were going whitewater rafting, and um, my friends were just really excited about going. And I was scared I was going to die. I mean, they're telling about uh, these huge rapids, and I'm just terrified that I'm going to die. It turned out to be a lot of fun, but, you know, there's two different responses. Um, the other day I was talking to my barber. This sounds like the start of a joke, but it's not. Um, I was talking to my barber, and uh, he was saying, like, how he's terrified of whales. And I remember going on this whale-watching trip in Massachusetts. It was, like, one of the coolest things I would ever been a part of and he was just like no I don't I don't want to be near whales. I'm terrified of whales. so you know people have different responses to kind of adventurous kind of crazy things you know it's either I'm really excited about it or I'm really terrified about it Um, there's some things that maybe are on our bucket list that we're like oh I'd really love to do that if I was given the opportunity and there's to other people it's terrifying so I have like a little survey of things like that that maybe we could go through um So in Australia, there's a place that you can go, a charter trip that you can go on, and they'll drop you down inside of this cage, and you can swim with the great white sharks, ginormous great white sharks, like in this picture. Now, how many of you would be excited by that? Who would be excited to go on something like that? All right, a few of us, I'd kind of like to do that. Who would be terrified? Many of us, okay. Um, There's another place, I believe it's also in Australia, it's called the Cage of Death. And uh, it's similar to this, although it's it's just kind of this glass spear that you go into, um, and they drop you in with like 15 foot alligators. Um, who would be excited to do something like this? A few of us. Who would be terrified? All right, a lot of a lot of people terrified of the crocodile. Um, so, what about a roller coaster? I want to say roller coaster, not just any roller coaster. This is the steepest roller coaster in the world. It's at the Fuji-Q Highland Amusement Park in Yamanashi, Japan. Uh, Who would be excited to go on this roller coaster? Quite a few, quite a few. Who would be terrified? That would be me. You could not pay me to go on that. Uh, How about this next one? Zip lining above the city, or I'm sorry, uh, riding a hot air balloon. Maybe having a picnic in the hot air balloon. Who would be excited by that? Wow, lots, lots of people. Lots of people. Anybody terrified? I'd be terrified of that. All right. Uh, zip lining over the city of Dubai, 500 feet high, speeds of 50 miles an hour plus. Who would be excited to do that? Who would be terrified? That would not be. I feel like I'm terrified of all these things. Uh, how about sandboarding? This is actually something I've always wanted to do, San- basically snowboarding, but sandboarding down the side of a mountain. Who would be excited to do something like this? Only a few of us. Who would be terrified? That's a kind of a mixed, mixed, mixed thing there. Uh, how about spelunking? If you don't know what spelunking is, it's going into caves, sometimes in very small spaces. Anybody be excited about that? To me, that's like the worst thing imaginable. A couple people excited about it. Uh, the last one, uh, kayaking. But not just kayaking, kayaking in Alaska or in Antarctica. Anybody be excited to kayak in Antarctica? Got a couple, okay? So there's a lot of different things in our lives that are like, to some people, they're exciting. Other people, they're terrifying. And when we look at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, uh, oftentimes we think about kind of the fickleness of the crowd. And, you know, we talk about like, you know, how, you know, one day they're praising Jesus and, you know, casting their uh, palm branches down and their clothing down. And and then a few days later, they're crucifying crucifying him. And when we look at the story, it's kind of not a completely accurate understanding. There's some people that probably changed their mind. Um, But in this passage, even, we see kind of different responses to Jesus and how they understand Jesus. So there's the one group that is called the crowd. And the crowd is most likely people who are traveling with Jesus for the Passover from Galilee. And and the crowd is described as the ones who are crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who are throwing their palm branches down. and, And they're excited about Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Uh, On the other hand, you have uh, the Judeans, those who lived in Jerusalem, uh, people who are maybe not as familiar with Jesus' ministry, Um, and for those people, it says that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the whole uh, city was stirred up, and literally the Greek word is shaken, the whole city was shaken as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They're like, who is this guy? What what is he doing? Why is he uh, coming in here like this uh, uh, with all of this procession? And what is he trying to do? And so you have kind of two different responses to Jesus. And on the one hand, you have the Galileans, this crowd who's excited about Jesus entering into Jerusalem, but they're excited for the wrong reasons. And then you have the Judeans who are terrified of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, but they're also terrified for the wrong reasons. And so both groups, they see the same event, but one is excited, one is terrified, but they're all, both doing so for the wrong reasons. And so we, as we look at this passage today, we're going to look at kind of the expectations of the people and how Jesus kind of upended those expectations, and in turn we're going to kind of look at how Jesus upends our expectations of who we think he should be and who he actually is. And so we see first the Galilean crowd. They're excited because they believe that Jesus is going to come and Jesus is going to change their circumstances. The crowd is excited because they think Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem and he's going to liberate them from Rome. They apply Messianic language to Jesus. They quote us from Psalm 118 and saying, Hosanna, which means save us now. Uh, One scholar that I read suggested that they were basically saying God save the king or long live the king. And so they're applying messianic language to Jesus. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they think this is their moment that Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem and kind of the longing of their hearts is going to be fulfilled and the kingdom of God is going to be restored and Israel is going to have its place of glory that it once had. They're going to be a significant people once again. In other words, they're going to get what they had always wanted, their dream. And yet, really, when it came down to it, these were not the dreams that God had for his people. God had good dreams for his people, plans to prosper them, to give them a future. But they were different plans than the plans that they had hoped for. And we see that Jesus upends their expectations in the way that he comes into Jerusalem. We see that he comes in on a donkey, and Matthew cites um, Zechariah chapter 9 as in, 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 a, being a fulfillment of this, that Jesus is entering in on a donkey. Now, the image is striking. You know, you think about a warrior entering into Jerusalem. and Jesus wasn't the first messianic person that would have come into Jerusalem, most likely. Uh, there were probably several people who claimed to be the Messiah or claimed to be liberators who came into Jerusalem And so you would expect someone like that to first ride on a horse, because horses are big, and you'd also expect a person like that to be a strong, formidable person, someone who's kind of terrifying and inspiring fear in those around them. But Jesus is neither of those things. He enters into into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, what does that tell us? Well, think about it, and like, what did Jesus look like? You think about like, how much... Did Jesus weigh? How tall was Jesus? Of course, we don't have those things in the Bible. But if Jesus was kind of average, uh, the average height in that time period was about 5 foot to about 5 foot 5. Um, so he's probably somewhere in there. And then you think about a donkey. And, you know, kind of an average donkey can hold about 125 pounds. I mean, there's, there's a few, like, ginormous donkeys that can hold more. But the, kind of the average donkey can hold, like, 125 pounds. So if you had to guess, and again, this isn't in Scripture, this is just a speculation, but if you had to guess, like, what did Jesus look like? He was probably, at my guess, would be like five to 115 pounds. I mean, he's, he's small. Not this formidable giant, not this strong warrior entering into Jerusalem. Uh, also, Matthew tells us something interesting that the other gospel writers don't tell us, that uh, Jesus entered with two donkeys, a mother and a colt. Uh, now, why, why were there two? Um, some scholars suggest that Jesus was riding in on the baby, the colt, and the mother was there to kind of steady the, the, the young colt as they were going through crowds and going through rough terrain, just to kind of comfort him because he was young, hadn't been ridden on, uh, wasn't familiar with the area, just to comfort him. And you think about this image, on the one hand you have a warrior coming in with with armor and swords, a ginormous, strong beast of a man coming in on a horse, and then you have Jesus riding in five foot two perhaps 115 pounds on a donkey with his mommy. I mean it's a striking image of a king entering into a city. The text notes that Jesus came into Jerusalem like that to show his humility also in the context of Zechariah the Messiah is noted as a king who brings peace Zechariah nine ten says this I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations his rule shall be from sea to sea and from river from the river to the ends of the earth he's not a king who comes in battle he comes to bring peace and I think about kind of the contrast in the Old Testament. Remember the contrast between Saul and David? Uh, remember the Israelites call out for a king and they said we need someone to go before us to fight our battles and kind of the man who was chosen that was uh, you know the person that would be expected to be a king was Saul. He was a foot above everyone else, a strong, imposing uh, beast of a man, so to speak. And uh, you know and we know, yet we know that he, you know, led the people astray, didn't have wasn't brave led the people away from God. And then on the other hand, you have David, who is a shepherd boy, not trained in war, not ready for battle, and yes, that's the man that's after God's own heart. And in this passage, again, we see that Jesus is called the son of David. He's a king who's unlike any other king. He's not a king who comes with strength and power. He comes in riding on a donkey in peace and humility. It's not the image that the people were expecting. They were expecting Jesus to come in and change their circumstances, to liberate them from the Romans, but that's not why he came. Oftentimes when people, for lack of a better word, become religious, they go to church or participate in religious practices, it's so that God would change their circumstances. So if I go to church, then God will help me in my financial situation, or if I go to church and read my Bible, then maybe God will fix my marriage, um, or if I go to church, maybe God will provide me with a spouse. And those things are not wrong to seek those things. Those, you know, sometimes God provides us with those things. Sometimes God changes our circumstances. Uh, but in the, as we look at this passage, we see that God's goal is deeper than just simply changing our circumstances. God isn't, Jesus doesn't come here simply to liberate them from the Romans. He has a bigger plan in mind. What the Israelites were excited about was not necessarily wrong, but it was a vision that was far too small. I mean, imagine if that would have been Jesus' goal. If it was only to liberate them from the Romans, to change their circumstance, what a small vision that would be. But Jesus had so much more. As we look at this story, it's a reminder that God is often doing things that go beyond our circumstances. Yes, we pray often that God would change our circumstances, but we serve a God who works in spite of our circumstances, who has a bigger plan than we can imagine, who ultimately is concerned about changing our hearts more than our circumstances. Writing John Boy- writer John Boykin says this, Reading God's hand into circumstances can be an evasion of genuine commitment to being his person in them. It can be an insidious alternative to giving him your heart because it keeps your attention directed outward rather than inward, where his chisel bites. We have elevated coincidence to the status of miracle and the interpretation of coincidence to gospel. We can routinely ask God to intervene in our circumstances while hoping he'll keep his nose out of inner things like our spiritual indifference and pride. God has big plans for us, and sometimes it goes beyond our circumstance. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem not just to liberate them from the Romans, but to liberate their hearts from sin and death. He had a much bigger vision than the Israelites and Galileans had. And so we see these Galileans, they're excited about the wrong things. They think that Jesus is just going to simply change their circumstance, but we see that Jesus wants to change their hearts and eventually change their destinies. The Judeans, on the other hand, those in Jerusalem are terrified because Jesus is a threat to them. He's a threat to them. Uh, Again, this probably wouldn't have been the first time a Messiah had come into Jerusalem uh, claiming to liberate the people um, and so you have kind of the Romans on the one hand would just be kind of like indifferent, like again we have to face this, you know, an insurrection of people who are coming in to take over our authority. Uh, and then on the other hand you'd have Jewish people, religious leaders who, would afraid, who were afraid of Jesus taking their authority, religious authority, and um, Also, you know, the Jews were kind of in this precarious position, whereas they had some kind of, some level of control over their country. The Romans were ultimately in charge, and so they had this kind of precarious balance. And so, if Jesus comes in and leads this insurrection, it could mean that Rome comes in and is really heavy handed and just kind of um, takes away some of the freedoms that they had over their country. And so for people entering, for people in Jerusalem, they're stirred up, they're shaking, like, who is this? Why is he coming in here? What is he trying to do? And what is this going to mean for us? And so they were afraid of losing control. And in a sense, they were correct. Jesus was going to change the the power structure. He wasn't going to do away with Rome, but he was going to go into the temple and overthrow the money changers. And Jesus was a threat to their control. But the thing is, they're terrified of the wrong thing. They're terrified of, of losing control. But really what they should be terrified is, of, they should be terrified of keeping control of their own lives. Because when we keep control of our own lives, it always leads to destruction. So I've flown on airplanes a number of times. And uh, if you're like me, when you go onto an airplane, um, and I know acknowledge some people are afraid to fl- fly in airplanes, um, but if you're like me, you know, you're going on an airplane, and it's for me, it's not a super nerve-wracking experience. I've done it many different times, and, you know, you think about the statistics, and, like, you know, you're more, much more likely to get in a car accident and die than, you know, an airplane. It's relatively rare, and you have you know, safety mechanisms in place. You have a pilot, co-pilot, et cetera. But let's say you go on an airplane. You go find your seat in the back. You go, and you take off, and you get to kind of cruising altitude, and then the pilot and the co-pilot come back, find you in your seat, and they said, we're done. We're out. You're in control of this plane now. We're going to sit back here and be passengers. You take control of the plane. And that, that would be terrifying. You'd have an incredible amount of control. You'd have control over hundreds of people's lives. You'd have control over your, over your own life. You could decide where you were going to go, where you were going to land. But it would be terrifying because you don't know how to fly the plane. Sometimes control leads us to destruction. We think that gaining control, having control is going to help us, but having control often leads us to a place of destruction. Jesus is the only one who knows how to control our lives. And it's only by submitting to his lordship, following his lead, that we can find peace in life. Control doesn't help us. Control destroys us. It's only in giving up control to Christ that we find life. Eugene Peterson talks about this in relationship to the apostles and uh, one who kind of tried to gain control and ultimately was led to destruction and one who failed, lost control, but found life. He says, among the apostles, the one absolutely stunning success was Judas. And the one thoroughly groveling with failure was Peter. Judas was a success in the ways that most impressed us. He was successful both financially and politically he cleverly arranged to control the money of the apost- apostolic band he skillfully manipulated the political forces of the day to accomplish his goal and peter was a failure in ways that we most dread he was impotent in a crisis and socially in at the arrest of jesus he collapsed a hapless blustering coward in the most critical situations of his life with jesus the confession on the road to caesarea philippi in the vision of the Mount of Transfiguration, he said the most embarrassingly inappropriate things. He was not the companion we would want with us in time of danger. And he was not the kind of person we would feel comfortable with at a social occasion. Time, of course, has reversed our judgments on the two men. Judas is now a byword for betrayal, and Peter is one of the most honored names in church and, in the church world. Judas is a villain, Peter is a saint. Yet the world continues to chase after the success of Judas, financial wealth, political power, and to defend itself against the failures of Peter, impotence and ineptness. Judas had control. He had control of his whole life. Even up to his death when he killed himself, he was in control, but it led him to destruction. Peter, in many ways, was out of control, but he came to a place in his life where he submitted control of his life to Christ, and he went on to change the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' kingship is an offer of freedom. But not freedom from the Romans. Not freedom from losing control. Freedom to give up ourselves. To take up our cross daily and follow him. And as we do so, to find life. It's an offer of freedom from the dominion of sin and death in our lives. So we see that the Galileans are excited about Jesus for the wrong reasons. The Judeans, the people from Jerusalem, are are terrified about Jesus for the wrong reasons. But we see that God has a different plan. God has a completely different plan. You see, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it wasn't just any Sunday. It was the first day of Passover, and it was a day called the 10th of Nisan. And on the 10th of Nisan, the book of Exodus describes what should happen. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, it says this, Tell all the congregations of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So the the tenth of Nisan came to be known as Lamb Selection Day. It was lamb selection day and and the the lambs would be led into the city of Jerusalem and uh, the religious leaders would inspect them and, and figure out which ones were without blemish and perfect. And then each family would go to the marketplace and they would pick out a lamb for their family to sacrifice to cover their sins. So that's what would have been happening on this day. It's lamb selection day. The lambs would have been inspected. The lambs would have been purchased for the sacrifice. And into that context, Jesus comes in to Jerusalem. And the uh, scholars believe, many scholars believe, that he entered in through the east gate, which was called the sheep gate. And into this context where people are are, are inspecting the sheep, Jesus enters in through the sheep gate on the 10th of Nisan, on the lamb selection day. And what God is saying is here's your lamb. You know, people, when, when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, they're thinking he's going to be a warrior, and God's like, he's not the warrior, he's the lamb. Later he'll be the warrior, now he's the lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Four days later, Exodus continues and says that the lamb should be sacrificed, and the blood of the lamb should cover the doorpost of your house, signifying uh, the, the angel of death that passed over in the Passover, and then that night, on the, on the fourth day after this, uh, the family would cook the lamb and they would eat the lamb. So fast forward four days after Palm Sunday of Holy Week. Jesus is with his disciples. He's eating Passover. This wouldn't have been the first time they were faithful Jews. They'd probably eaten Passover a number of times before. Some of them, you know, being faithful Jews, had probably eaten Passover their entire lives. But this time it was different. This time it was different because when they were about to eat the lamb, Jesus said, here, take. This is my body broken for you. In other words, you've done this a number of times before, but this time is different. This time, I'm the lamb. I'm the lamb. And from there, he leaves that place and he's arrested and led to the cross, crucified the next day. The people think Jesus has come to defeat their enemies, but Jesus has come to win their hearts. He's not coming into Jerusalem as a warrior. He's coming in as a lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to die for those who had rejected him. The fall of 1937, there's a man by the name of Ad Kiefer. Uh, he was described as tall, slender, bespectacled. He was the president of the calculus club, the vice president of the engineering club, member of the school's uh, exclusive honor society, and he invented a device called the cupidoscope. And this cupidoscope was uh, kind of inspired by this question: How do we measure love? And so he invented this device where uh, he came up with this, this word called amor cycles, which were kind of uh, the way that you measure how a, a man and a woman love each other and how much they love each other. It brought much press to the, um, to the school, and uh, he built it in the school's physics lab. It was fashioned from an old radio cabinet, a motor spark coil, electrical resistor. And to test their bond, a man and a woman would grip the electrodes on either side of the computerscope Move them towards one another until the woman felt a spark, not of attraction, but of electricity. The higher her tolerance for the mild current, the more of a love signal that meter registered. A needle decorated with hearts purported to show her devotion on a scale that ranged from no hope to see the preacher to get married. Inspired by that question, how do you measure love? As believers, the way that we measure love is by looking to the cross. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he started a revolution. But it wasn't a revolution that was brought by power and weaponry. It was, brought, it was a revolution of love. He entered not as a warrior, but as a lamb. There's a poem that reads like this. The love for equals is a human thing. A friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is love, loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. Then there's the love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The love of the tortured for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. As believers, were recipients of this love. The love of Christ. The love that led Jesus to enter into the gates of Jerusalem as a lamb to die for his enemies, to die for each and every one of us. We're recipients of that. And we can rejoice in that love. We can glory in that love. But we also have a responsibility to share that love with those around us. And so today, let's just be reminded of that. Let's be reminded of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's be reminded that we're all broken. We're all in need of grace. And yet we all have a perfect sacrifice in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for your humility. That while you could have entered into Jerusalem with 10,000 angels and destroyed all of your enemies, you came in on a lowly donkey, entering in through the sheep gate, headed for a cross. Headed for a death, separation from the Father. Headed for a death that was so horrific we can't even imagine. But we thank you that you did that for us. We thank you that you loved us that much. Lord, help us never to forget that. Help us never to move beyond that. May that be the fuel for our godliness. May that be the fuel for our perseverance. May that be the fuel to do things that are difficult and hard. May your love compel us to love those around us. To love those who love us, but also to love those who don't love us, to love our enemies. Lord, help us to live in your love today. In Christ's name I pray.